Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm the host of today's special edition episode, Nurse Practitioner and NP Education Specialist, Patty Scalzo. And this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. AANP's podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back often for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. I'm excited to announce that NP Pulse podcast listeners may claim CE credit for this program through July 2024 by visiting aanp.org slash center, Selecting this activity, entering the participation code provided at the end of this podcast, and then completing the post-test and evaluation. This AANP accredited podcast, Type 2 Diabetes Case Studies in Individualized Care, is part of a six-part series in the Clinical Advantage Bootcamp Type 2 Diabetes Management Certificate for Nurse Practitioners funded by independent medical educational grants from Mylan Incorporated of Beatrice Company and Novo Nordisk Incorporated. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, diabetes affects more than 37 million Americans, which is about 11% of the population. 90 to 95% of people with diabetes have type 2 diabetes, and approximately 8.5 million people are living with undiagnosed diabetes. And sadly, the incidence of type 2 diabetes continues to increase. On today's podcast, we're joined by nurse practitioners Shannon Isaac and Katherine Evans-Kreider to discuss case studies of commonly encountered issues in the management of type 2 diabetes. Dr. Shannon Isaac is a professor and associate dean at the University of Maryland School of Nursing. She's a nurse practitioner in the Comprehensive Care Center at the University of Maryland Upper Chesapeake Medical Center. Her clinical practice includes medically complex chronic disease management, including caring for patients with diabetes. Dr. Katherine Kreider is an associate clinical professor and lead faculty for the endocrinology specialty for nurse practitioners at Duke University School of Nursing. She's a nurse practitioner in the Division of Endocrinology, Metabolism, and Nutrition at Duke University Medical Center. Her clinical practice includes advanced diabetes management and general endocrinology. It is my pleasure to welcome our experts, Drs. Isaac and Dr. Kreider. Thank you so much for that introduction. My name is Katherine Kreider. I'm pleased to be here with you all today with Dr. Shannon Isaac. And we are going to start right off talking about some diabetes cases. So Dr. Isaac, I'm going to start with this first case, and we're going to be talking first about a patient with newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes. So I'm going to read just a brief overview of this case, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you'd approach this particular patient. So this is Clarissa. She's a 45-year-old woman recently diagnosed with type 2 diabetes after visiting urgent care for a blood pressure medication refill. 
She was provided a 30-day prescription for hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams a day, and she was asked to follow up with her primary care doctor within two weeks for a blood pressure recheck because her non-fasting glucose was 232 milligrams per deciliter. And of course, that indicated type 2 diabetes. So prior to this recent event, her last clinical contact was about four years ago when she was 41. At that point, she had a BMI of 28, which indicated that she was overweight. She had hypertension at that point. Her blood pressure was 145 over 97. But today, now four years later, her BMI is 31, so she's in the obese category. Her blood pressure remains elevated at 140 over 93, and this is despite reported adherence to the thiazide that was prescribed in urgent care. So at this point, she's worried because the urgent care provider said she had type 2 diabetes. She reports that both her mother and her sister are overweight, have hypertension, and type 2 diabetes, and she also reports that her mother has some kidney disease. So the objective data we have today are that her A1C is 7.4% and her fasting plasma glucose is 130. So I'd love to hear how we start off with this patient. How do you even start developing a management plan for this particular patient? Maybe we can start with what our treatment goals might be. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be here with you. Uh, and this is a really typical case I think we'd see in primary care where you know, patients are diagnosed sometimes not based on routine screening, at other times maybe in the emergency room, uh, at another illness, although we'd love to think that people are getting routine screening and we'd pick them up in that way. Often we, we do see this happen. So I think the first piece to think about is how we make sure that we're communicating in a patient-centered way with this particular patient, because obviously she's already expressed concern and she has some worry. And so I think that first priority for me as a clinician, as I would talk to her, being a younger person, I always like to talk to patients about how important it is for us to be really aggressive in their treatment and making sure that we're not letting lags of time go by. In particular, you know, focusing on those metrics that we know we can assess, her glycemic targets, her blood pressure target, her weight um, goals, and working together to establish what those targets are. As we know, for glycemic control, we're looking for someone who's young like her, who really doesn't have, you know, at least to our knowledge at this point, a lot of other history of comorbidities, we want to try to get her A1C close to 6.5, definitely less than 7. There's a lot of factors that we would look at in patients as we try to determine what their goal for their hemoglobin A1C are. And I'm sure many of you have heard about those. And Catherine, you certainly work with patients in this category. If they might be elderly, have lots of other complications, we may not try to get an A1C of 6.5. But in someone like her, who's very young, I often will say to patients, you're 45, I hope you live another 60 years. And so we want to make sure that for the next 60 years, you don't have hyperglycemia causing damage to your vessels. The same is true for blood pressure, right? So we want to make sure that we're being aggressive. We know that diabetes is an independent cardiovascular risk factor, and we want to make sure that her blood pressure is well controlled. So we're going to be looking to get her blood pressure under 130 over 80. In terms of weight, the last BMI that we had for her was a BMI of 28. And obviously, we are trying to get her down into the normal weight category, at least overweight. I think the challenge there is that conversation, that patient-centered conversation with patients about what are realistic targets from one visit to the next. We certainly don't want her to leave our office thinking she has to lose 
50 pounds overnight. So small achievable goals, I think are really important. How about your thoughts on her? No, that's great. I think one thing I always recommend, and that's in the literature too, is that a 5% weight loss provides measurable benefits. A lot of times, like you said, patients will come in and say, I want to lose 50 or 100 pounds. And that may be true, but let's start with 5%, right? And they start to feel so much better. We start seeing improvements in their glycemic control and in their blood pressure. And so starting off with that can be a lot more achievable and help them feel like they can start making some progress, which is beneficial. So, but I completely agree we do want to try to achieve a tighter glycemic target, A1C less than six and a half if possible. Yeah. So what kind of things would you recommend to her in terms of dietary or nutrition recommendations as you were meeting with her on that first visit, just some recommendations to kind of get down below losing 5%. Yeah. I mean, I always start with trying to do a quick diet overview. And I know that a lot of times in clinic, we don't always have time to do a full review, right? As a dietitian would, for example, but we can ask them, can you give me an idea of what you had to eat yesterday, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, and then you'll start to gather what's going on. Are they eating out a lot, fast food? Are they doing sodas? Are they doing sweet tea? Are they doing a lot of snacking? And then we start thinking about what are some things right off the top that you think that you could adjust? And I ask them, what do you think would make a difference with your diabetes? What do you think would make a difference with your weight? And what are you willing to do? And let's start with that. And that goes over so much better than if we are telling them, stop drinking soda, stop eating chips. You know, we really have to get buy-in from the patient. And of course, we want to provide good recommendations for them and we want to give them guidance, but being able to have them develop the plan and to have buy-in is so important. And that will really set them up for better success if you do that. Those are great suggestions. One of the things I heard one time from a dietitian, which I think was really helpful, was to talk about things to add to their diet as opposed to things to take away. That initial conversation, I think particularly in patients who have obesity, is really a critical one where they know that they're overweight likely, and they've likely been trying for a while to lose weight. Most people have been But as opposed to talking to them about all the things that we want to take away, as you mentioned, you know, stop drinking soda, stop doing this, stop doing that, would be to talk to them about the things to add to their diet or things to try to exchange in their diet. So trying to add more vegetables. And I think for some patients, it's really just a mindset of thinking, okay, this isn't about what I can't do. This is about what I can do. And that seems to help them in their transition. What about medical nutrition therapy? As I mentioned, that was a tidbit that I heard from a dietitian. How often do you send them right away to medical nutrition therapy or diabetes education? Yeah, I think it depends on the patient. I think every patient with diabetes can benefit from going to see a dietitian and going through MNT. But the timing of that, I think, varies based on their willingness, their interest, how much they want to try things on their own first. But really, the bottom line is everyone can benefit from it at some point. So I think as a nurse practitioner, we just have to help them decide what the right interval is for that and when that might be the most beneficial for them to go. What do you think? I do. I I agree. I think it can be particularly challenging in patients around this age frame where they're working full time and the thought of really taking off more time from work to go to medical nutrition therapy or diabetes education can be tricky, but I do agree with you. It is a benefit for most patients and most, if not all patients benefit from talking to someone. I also think as a clinician in practice, it gets really challenging to to do all of this on your own from a time perspective. And so sometimes that, if nothing else, is a reason to, to send them. 
Absolutely. And I've had patients with diabetes for 30 or 40 years and they still learn something from going to meet with them, right? So that's just because they've had diabetes a long time, oftentimes there's a lot they still don't know and realize about diet and how that impacts their diabetes. So when we're thinking about this patient, Clarissa, what do you tell her about physical activity and exercise? Is that something that comes up in your clinic visit? How do you approach that component? You know, I approach it a very similar way to diet and trying to establish some of those small achievable goals. In the long haul, we really want her to be doing 30 minutes of exercise five days a week, right? Which is a goal, but we know that often patients come in and they are not exercising at all. They have zero physical activity, maybe in a sedentary job. And so I think the first thing is to, again, kind of get an assessment of what they're currently doing. Are they doing any exercise Are they physically active? Do they lead a sedentary lifestyle? And talking about what are some of the practical ways they can add physical activity into their daily living. Do they ride public transportation? Can they get off at a stop that's one stop away? Do they work in a building that has steps? Can they say, I'm going to take at least one flight of steps, then I'm going to get off and take the elevator the next 10 floors and work their way up to walking the steps instead of taking the elevator every single time. So some of those small challenges for themselves, I think can help increase physical activity, even other small things. Most people nowadays have a phone that tracks their steps. And while we might have an amount of steps in the end we'd like them to get to, saying, look at your weekly average this week. If your weekly average is 5,000, try to get to 5,500 next week and slowly work it up. Some of those little practical ways so that they don't feel overwhelmed. Because I think when we see patients who are not active at all, and we say to them, you need to do this large amount of physical activity, sometimes it can be overwhelming. Right, right. And I think that the difference is between describing physical activity versus exercise, right? And that's a big push now too, where physical activity is just moving your body more. And it doesn't have to be formal exercise where you're getting on the elliptical or et cetera. It can be just getting up out of your chair every 30 minutes, every 60 minutes, walking around your house, doing more house work, just moving your body. And that helps tremendously with reducing insulin resistance, et cetera. So that's a good, that's a good differentiation for people there. I think we've talked a little bit about the importance of eliciting patient preferences, what their goals are, helping them set goals, and really helping them identify potential barriers and helping with problem solving. Do you have anything else you want to add with regards to that approach that might be different than the sort of traditional medical model? I think, like you said, we did hit on a lot of this. I think one of the most important things is that non judgmental approach that I think we're really great at as nurse practitioners not blaming patients. I think having those conversations with patients early on helps set the stage for diabetes management as a team together, helping them understand that diabetes is not a moral failing. It's not something they've done wrong. There are a lot of genetic components. There's a lot of environmental components. There's a lot of in utero components. There's so many things that impact your diagnosis of diabetes and helping them understand that this is not a moral failing on their part. There are things that they can do to improve their care and that you'll work with them as part of their healthcare team to make sure that in the end, despite the fact that they now have this disease, that we can help them live a long and healthy life by collaborating together and setting goals. I find that most patients feel, and AAMP has done patient surveys, 
people feel blamed by their healthcare provider and they feel like they've, they've done things wrong. They're embarrassed to talk about their diabetes, even to family members, because they're afraid they're going to be judged for everything that they put in their mouth, for everything that they do. And I think helping them feel like we're a part of the team with them is really, really, really important in those first visits. Yeah, very well said. Thank you. And then if we think about medication options for this patient, obviously we want diet and lifestyle to always be the foundation of our recommendations. And I think we've laid that out pretty well. But if we're thinking about the fact that she is likely going to need a medication because her A1C of 7.4%, we're trying to get that less than 6.5 ideally, how would you go about selecting a first-line therapy for her? This is an interesting one, I think, because we know the guidelines have changed a bit uh, from from what they were in the past. We always said every single person needed to be on metformin. First line, that was the first line for everyone. There have been some shifts in that thinking. Metformin is still a very safe, effective medication that I think should be considered in everyone, but there may be other better options for her. And when we look at all the classes of type 2 diabetes medications, we want to look at them with all of their secondary gain and impacts, right? So we know the goal of all of them is to lower blood glucose and lower their hemoglobin A1C, but it's important to think about how low, how much lower do we need to get their hemoglobin A1C? How far away are they from target? And also, again, these other secondary gains. So we know for her, she's overweight, right? And so we know that losing weight is going to have a substantive impact on her long-term success, her long-term diabetes management. I would start to think about what are the medications aside from metformin that we might choose. It's not necessarily a must choose metformin, but there might be other medications. And some of those other medications that may be impactful when we think about weight loss are medications like the GLP-1 receptor agonists for weight loss. I would want to consider that as a possibility for her. Obviously, there are a lot of factors that go into whether or not someone can be on those type of medications, including cost, whether or not they're willing to take an injection, although there is an oral agent, and a variety of other things, other reasons they could or couldn't take that medication. How would you approach that with her? You did a really nice job. I would say that although the guidelines now recommend that we consider other therapies, of course, insurance often creates a huge barrier to that. And so I think that as time goes on and the medicines become more accessible, that will be less of an issue because I would certainly say overall, a medication like, like semaglutide or dulaglutide would be preferred because of her weight and because of that general efficacy for A1C lowering. But, you know, oftentimes we have that barrier where we have to try metformin first. And so um, it'll be interesting in our own practices just to see how this evolves with time. But I think that your thought process there is perfect. Metformin is wonderful, right? But now that we know that all these other medicines have even more beneficial effects, we should be thinking about those preferentially when possible. I'll tell you the other thing I talk to patients about a lot of times with metformin versus other medications and or in addition to other medications, is thinking someone like her who's already expressed a little bit of nervousness, right? She's worried about having diabetes. And I will often say to them, metformin came out in 1953 in Europe. It has 70 years of history. It's safe. It's effective. It's still safe and effective. It's tried and true. Not that the other medications are not, but none of them have 70 years of history in data. Great point. I think my key takeaway for her is making sure that we collaborate together to set targets, talk early about the benefits of blood glucose control on 
decreasing risk, cardiovascular risk, kidney risk, all of the risks that we know that are associated with diabetes. We're not getting into this a lot with this particular case, but all of those other things that we need to talk to patients about with type 2 diabetes, eye care, foot care, all of those things. The main key takeaway for her is weight loss, blood pressure control, glucose control, and all of the referrals to appropriate diabetes care that she'll need. It's a lot of key takeaways, right? It is a lot of key takeaways. <laughs> it, it certainly wasn't one, was it? But Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, and my key takeaway, I think, for this case is don't forget the importance of early and aggressive glucose lowering. I think we see A1Cs between six and a half and seven, or maybe seven, one, seven, two. And sometimes we have other priorities in that clinic visit, but just remember how important it is to try to get their A1Cs down less than six and a half when possible. And we know that that will provide additional benefit for the patient long-term. So let's try to be aggressive early on. And we can usually do that very well, given the medication options that we have. Yes. I think that's critical for her. I 100% agree. We need to be very aggressive about getting blood glucose down and A1C down. And often we let other competing demands get in the way. <laughs> so Let's go over another case. Xavier is a 52-year-old man who was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes when he was 47. And at that time, his A1C was 6.9. So this was about five years ago. He's 6.9. He was started on metformin, counseled on lifestyle interventions with a target A1C of less than 6.5. He initially declined to 6.4 and remained really stable over about three years. But over the last two years, you've seen his A1C start to creep back up. And in his most recent visit, his A1C was 7.1%. So he's still on his original metformin dose of 1,500 milligrams a day and is also taking a moderately dosed statin for hyperlipidemia. This is a great kind of example of what we would call therapeutic inertia. Talk to me a little bit about that and, and what, what are your thoughts and how do we manage that as providers? Yeah, so this is another good example of a patient who's still young. He's middle-aged. He's had diabetes for five years. So he technically would really benefit from an A1C less than six and a half if possible, right? If we're not causing him hypoglycemia or undue treatment burden, and he is only on metformin. So that is not the case at this point. So therapeutic inertia is when patients continue coming back to clinic and we are not making any additional treatment recommendations. Maybe we're saying, hey, lose some weight or, hey, let's work on your diet but we are not adding anything to further benefit the patient to get them to goal, right? And so that's on us as providers and we can do better. And if patients are showing up and they're coming to clinic and they're asking us for help, we definitely have a responsibility to continue to make treatment recommendations that will get them to their treatment goals. I'm a very aggressive as far as prescribing and trying to get patients to goal with safety and avoiding hypoglycemia. And we talked about competing priorities. And I think oftentimes that's the case when we're, especially in primary care, when we're trying to manage heart failure and hypertension and hyperlipidemia and weight and depression, and there's all these things that come up and, and can create this therapeutic inertia, perhaps in one situation like diabetes, because we look at this A1C of 7.1 and we think, well, it's not so bad, right? But truly it's not his goal. So this is a good example of that. Definitely, this can be approached differently that would benefit him more impactfully. What do you think about that? 100% agree. Again, I think this is someone who's young and, you know, at this point, relatively healthy, and we really need to be aggressive with their treatment. 
One of the things I find which is interesting, and I'm always kind of grappling with this as a clinician in my mind, there are hemoglobin A1C norms for people who don't have diabetes and then hemoglobin A1C goals. And the same is true for glucose, right? So we have our glucose goals when people have diabetes, and then we have what is a normal for someone who doesn't have diabetes. I often use those exact examples and explain to patients because I think sometimes in their head, they get to the point where they think 6.6 is quote normal. So that they think that when we say we want to get your A1C less than 6.5, that they think that that means 6.4 is normal. I think these conversations early on in the disease process help them understand that even 6.4, while that might be great and that might be our goal, that is still much higher than they had 15 years ago when they did not have a diagnosis of diabetes. And I think that helps them understand how important it is. Those are our goals. We're trying to get there, but that's still not on diabetes level. And I think that helps them kind of put those numbers on a continuum a little bit better. And it also helps me put them on a continuum a little bit better. Even though 6.4 is our goal or 6.5, if they didn't have diabetes, they would be 4.9 or 5.2. And so I think that's important for us to kind of keep in our mind. It helps us set a range for what those numbers mean. What would you think about in terms of pharmacotherapy for him? You know, right now he's on 1,500 a day. Uh, Is there anything else you'd want to know? What might be your next steps in terms of glucose management? Right. So I think the default that I would probably see in many providers is that they would say, oh, okay, well, your, your metformin dose is not high enough. So we're going to bump you to 2000, right? <laughs> and really that, that is such a minimal change that that is not going to get him to goal. And so I think sometimes we do things that might make us feel better, like we're making a little progress, but, but actually that's not the most therapeutic recommendation. So sure, you can increase him to 2000 milligrams of metformin per day, but is that really going to make a difference? Not significantly. So he needs something else. He needs another medication. So we do need more information. I need to know what else is in his health history. I need to know what his renal function is. I need to know what his weight is because that will be able to provide us or to provide him the best recommendation for what additional diabetes medication would be the most effective next step, if that makes sense. If he had, uh, if he was overweight or obese, then we might tend towards GLP-1, right? If he had renal disease or CKD, we might trend towards an SGLT-2. So we do need to know a little bit more about him to make a treatment decision. And that's based on the latest guidelines from ADA. So let's kind of go through some of those examples. I think it would be very reasonable to optimize his metformin, but that's not likely to get him to where he needs to go. Adding 500 of metformin is probably not going to get him down below 6.5. If he was overweight, not necessarily obese, would that change what you did versus if he were severely obese? Uh, maybe and maybe not. Someone had severe obesity. If if that was their primary health comorbidity, then that would be one of our primary targets. In that situation, we would want to use a GLP-1 or even the newer GLP-1, GIP medications that have even more efficacy for weight. So in some ways, maybe if the overweight or obesity was his primary health issue, then that would be what we wanted to address in addition to the diabetes. So there may not be a big distinction between those two. Suppose he had a family history of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or he himself had known. I noticed in his initial review, he was on a moderate dose statin. That tells us not really a lot of information, but what are your thoughts about atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and choices of medications based on that? 
Right. So we do know that if patients are high risk for ASCVD, then ideally we would choose a medication that has been shown to reduce the progression of ASCVD or CV risk factors, right? Heart attacks, strokes, et cetera. So there are several medication options, both in the SGLT2 and GLP-1 class that have been shown to, to improve outcomes with regards to ASCVD. So it doesn't have to be patients that have already had an event. It can be also patients that are high risk. Not all the medications have been shown to have that benefit, right? So we'd want to make sure we're clear on which ones do so that we can select a medication that would best benefit him. How about cost? We know these newer medications, and you, we brought it up as we talked about the last patient, while ideally you might want to start a GLP-1 receptor agonist, the insurance may not cover it. And if they're uninsured, um, it's likely unaffordable. Where are your next steps then? Yeah, we've been pretty successful in our area getting patient assistance programs, but we also have a lot of staff. I work in an academic medical center. We have people helping us with that, and that's definitely not the case across the board. So if you have, have really reached out and tried to access these better medications and you're not able to, at that point, we have to choose something that's going to be effective and safe, but may not be a newer option, and that's okay. We know that that's going to happen. We still have options such as sulfonylureas or TZDs that could be used used in patients with monitoring. And, you know, it's very important to continue to work on getting their A1C down, even if we can't use the newer medications. What about you? What are your thoughts on that, on, on cost and insurance? It's really the same. I have seen over the past year, a pretty profound increase in insurance coverage, at least in my experience with a lot of the GLP-1. Insurers are recognizing the long-term benefit may outweigh the cost. I don't know if that research has really been done, but there seems to be increasing coverage. I think where we really struggle is patients who are uninsured working with the pharmaceutical companies. Sometimes that is an option at times. Often it's not always a lot. The, the copay cards are often a short-term option. The patient assistance plans need to be done more for long-term, long-term care or longer-term treatment. I also see sometimes though patients who are insured but I, I like to call them underinsured in that their co-pays are so high that it makes it unsustainable long-term for them. And you know, some of us don't tend to think about that, but as we start to put patients on multiple medications, you know, they're on a statin, they're on a ACE inhibitor, they're on metformin, and we add another medication that's a high-tier copay, their total monthly cost becomes unsustainable for them. And we have to look at other less expensive options. And many of the newer ones are brand name drugs and do have a higher copay. For so we just have to kind of work with them. And it's great when we have resources to help with that. Talk a little bit to me about what you might do with him in addition to pharmacotherapy. I think a lot of these principles are very similar across patients. And we talked about this for the first case, but we always want to talk about what they're eating, what their activity patterns are like, what their goals are, what's going well. That's something that we don't talk about a lot is, gosh, you're doing these things really well. And I think that's really helping you and making sure we're praising them and giving them good feedback. And it's not always just about what can be improved. I think giving them some positive reinforcement is a really good thing. So that's what I would do in addition. I think the other thing for us to think about as NPs is that this does not have to take a lot of time. And I think one of the reasons that this is not discussed more readily in clinic is we're afraid that it's going to take so long and we don't have time and the patient's going to go on and on. And some patients do, but a lot of times you can be very efficient and effective in discussing diet and lifestyle and mental health too. We haven't talked about that yet without taking a lot of time and it can be very impactful for the patient. Great. So 
one of the other things that I would think about too are, you know, some of those things that I would do in my practice, but also this would be a great time if he hasn't been referred to diabetes education or medical nutrition therapy. Now would be a great time if he hasn't accessed those resources yet. It would be a great time to do some diet refinement, help work on meal plans, et cetera. Those would be a couple of options. I think my key takeaway for this gentleman is part that you hit on early on, which is avoiding that clinical or therapeutic inertia and living with a 7.1 is okay in someone who's young when we know that that's really much higher than it should be. And so avoiding that, here's my number two takeaway. We really have to think about when we optimize dosing, that's great, but how much is optimizing one medication really going to get our A1C down? And that's the benefit of combination therapy. I think that's one area of inertia that we often face as opposed to adding a second agent, we tend to increase it. And we know the data says that it's really not going to get it down that much more. Adding another drug is much more likely to get it to goal than tweaking a current medication. So those are kind of my take-homes there. I would just add my takeaway from this case is that we should have a clear understanding of what their comorbidities are. And that's going to help us decide what the best next treatment option is going to be. So if it's obesity or overweight, then that might lead us down one pathway, such as GLP-1s. If it's ASCBD, we need to pick a medication that has an indication for that. If it's CKD or heart failure, we need to pick an SGLT2 preferentially. So make sure you have a clear understanding of what else is going on with the patient, and then that way you can provide the best recommendation. Great. Okay. Well, let's move on to another case. So Shannon, this is an older patient with type 2 diabetes. They have multiple other comorbidities. So this is similar, I'm sure, to many patients that we all see. So this is Celeste. She's 77 with type 2 diabetes. Her daughter is there in clinic with her for follow-up. Currently, she's being treated with metformin, gliburide, and saxagliptin. She's also being treated uh, for her COPD, and she takes bupropion for depression. Her latest lab evaluation shows that her A1C is 7.8, and we have developed a target for her of 7.5 or less. And when asked, she indicates that she's not having any tolerability issues with her medication or having any hypoglycemia symptoms. She does not routinely monitor her glucose levels at home. During the visit, her daughter indicates she's a bit concerned about her mom who's been feeling shaky, lightheaded, and dizzy, and she hasn't been acting like herself. So what are your thoughts just hearing that overview? I would immediately think, gosh, it's interesting that they're not attributing hypoglycemia symptoms to shaky, lightheaded, and dizzy and not acting like herself. So I would really want to get more information about when those shaky, lightheaded, and dizzy events are occurring, and I would want to encourage them to start. Uh, checking blood glucose levels at home for sure. How about you? Yes, absolutely. This is a perfect example of the fact that the A1C is not an accurate representation of what's going on on a daily basis. It's simply an average. So you can certainly have elevated A1Cs and have lots of hypoglycemia. So don't ever just say your A1C is a little high actually. So I don't know that that can be happening, right? We, we really want to make sure we're evaluating for hypoglycemia regardless of what the A1C level is. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's really important for patients to, to test. They'll say, I'm having hypoglycemia and or low blood sugars. 
So I ask them what they're doing with those low blood sugars. And they say, well, I eat candy. I drink orange juice. I do all of these things. And then I'll ask them how low, you know, when you say low, how low is low? And they go, I don't test. I just, I can feel it. And I always remind them there are a lot of things that feel like lightheaded, dizzy, including cardiac arrhythmias and a myriad of other dehydration, a myriad of other things. And cardiac arrhythmias and dehydration are not well treated with candy. <laughs> right? It's nothing else. I try to get them to the point of understanding that these symptoms could be signs of many things. And it's really important for us to know that it in fact is hypoglycemia or not hypoglycemia. So we're treating the right condition. That average comment I think is so important. And that is the benefit. Hemoglobin A1C is one metric, right? It's, it's not the only metric. You have patients who are having blood sugars in the fifties, but also one fifties, their A1C may not be that bad or fifties and two fifties. It might be a little high but they're still having 50s and 250s. People feel really bad when they're having swings like that. That's the other part. People, when they say they're not acting like themselves or just, I don't feel well, anytime you have that much variation in your blood glucose, it does make people feel really bad. So we really need to work to kind of stabilize it in a way that's helpful. I think hypoglycemia in older adults is such a concern because the risk of having hypoglycemia starts to outweigh the benefit of having controlled glucose. In this particular case, though, it's likely that she's having both. So she's getting the worst of both ends, the risks of hypoglycemia, plus the negative impact of the hyperglycemia, because obviously it's at high at some point if her A1C is 7.8. Yeah. And then can you speak a little bit to sort of evaluating hypoglycemia in older patients and, you know, different symptoms they may have compared to younger patients? As much like everything, as you age, sometimes the symptoms of hypoglycemia may not be as classic as they would be in a younger person, right? So that feeling of, and the other part is it depends on some of the medication, the other medications they might be on. For example, if you are on a beta blocker, you may not have tachycardia, that feeling you know that other people would have. So you may have a blunted response that a younger person wouldn't have. Right. Absolutely. So I think it's important as an NP when you're evaluating someone, you know, and they come in with symptoms that are maybe vague or they, they don't completely line up, that this should always be on your differential if they're on medications that could precipitate hypoglycemia. Yeah. So how would you evaluate, she's not monitoring her glucoses at home. So at this point, what are we going to do to gather more information about what could be happening? So I think there are a couple of options. One is determine whether or not she can take her own blood glucose. And that can be tricky as, as people are aging. I've certainly seen patients who just lose the dexterity ability and the cognitive ability to, to check their blood glucose on their own. You kind of take for granted your ability to do those fine motor tasks as a young person with great vision. Even as we hit our 40s, that up close vision starts to slim. Determining whether or not, A, can she check her blood glucose on her own? enough to be able to, to sort that out. It might mean a period of time of more frequent testing. And so you could do that regularly through finger stick um, blood glucometer. Another option is to consider continuous glucose monitoring. And I think if she's having symptoms of hypoglycemia, we could likely make the case for at least short-term continuous glucose monitoring. Many of us also have samples in our practice, and this would be a perfect use of putting a patient on a sample of a continuous glucose monitor to really get a feel for what her blood glucoses are doing over time. And then it would be important to kind of tie those 
blood glucose or symptoms with the reading. So making sure that when she had those symptoms that they would log it. And so we could see if it is in fact hypoglycemia that's causing those symptoms. Again, for the pure reason of, you know, lightheadedness and dizziness could be a lot of other things. And we don't want to be thinking it's diabetes and it's not. I'm confident that likely it is in this case, but we would want to know for sure. Any other thoughts on that? Would you do CGM on her? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And it it could be a professional for two weeks and that's plenty of time actually for us to get excellent information on what treatment decisions to make next. And now actually the coverage is much better for CGM for patients. So if she's high risk for hypoglycemia or has demonstrated hypoglycemia, we might be able to get it for her long-term, right? At least in the meantime, for the next two weeks, let's get some information, figure out what's going on. I would go ahead and adjust her medication and we can talk about that next. But we certainly for this patient want to make sure she's safe and that's the priority compared to the potential risk for a slight hyperglycemia. I think eliminating the hypo right now is the priority. So kind of leading into that, let's talk about her A1C target. So I think in the beginning we said her target maybe is less than 7.5% given her age. It doesn't say what her duration of diabetes is, but do you have any other comments on that target? Does that seem appropriate to you? Would you change that? Broadly, I would say that's a reasonable target, less than 7.5. I think one of the things we tend to do is just look at age as a number, but I think it's important to really look at the other comorbidities as well. There are 77-year-old people who are very healthy, very active, cognitively intact, and likely have many years of life left, in which case closer to set might be a better option. If this not acting herself is dementia onset, or if she, depending on the severity of her COPD, is she a hospice candidate level of COPD, then trying to get to a really low A1C is really not ideal. I always say, does the impact of the high blood sugar, is it going to outlive you? Right? And if it's not going to outlive her, then we really have to be cautious about preventing hypoglycemia. I think in her, 7.5 is not a bad target, but at the risk of, if the only option is sulfonylurea, like gliburide to get her to that target, then maybe not. So she's on metformin, she's on gliburide, she's on saxagliptin. We actually don't know what her renal function is either, which would be helpful to know at this point for safety reasons. But what are your thoughts on that medication combination and what might we do to adjust, if anything? Right. So I would try to get her off gliburide if I could. So it's unlikely that the metformin and the saxagliptin are causing the hypoglycemia, pretty much not going to be causing the hypoglycemia. But once you add gliburide to that combination, a sulfonylurea, the risk of hypoglycemia goes up tremendously. So I would want to know what the doses of all of her medications and see if there's a way that we could potentially get her off of gliburide to reduce her risk of hypoglycemia. That might not be a possibility, but I would certainly want to try. If she's truly having hypoglycemia, she shouldn't be on gliburide. Yeah. And gliburide is actually, I believe it's the longest acting sulfonylurea or one of the longest. And so that's one of the reasons why it's potentially so dangerous for older patients, especially when many of them are dealing with CKD to some degree. So absolutely. I think that's sort of a low hanging fruit that that needs to be adjusted, discontinued, not just decreased. Ideally, we'd have to kind of see how she did and responded to that and to see if we needed to add something else on top of her other two medications. So how would you approach that part about next steps? I would probably take a step back and look at all of the other things. So, you know, thinking that number one, I saw that she was on a medication for depression. Have there been major changes to her diet that might be causing hyperglycemia at certain times? 
What's she eating? What's her physical activity? Are there other things that might be impacting the hyperglycemia side of things? And then I would look at what are the other medication options for her. And obviously, particularly as we see patients elderly with insurance-related barriers, there might be challenges, but there are other medications that we could consider for her, including GLP-1s and or SGLT-2s is another option for treat for treatment. So I think certainly there are choices besides glaburide for her would not likely cause hypoglycemia. So I would, based on what her other risk factors are, start one of those, you know, depending on what her blood glucose was without it. The other thing I find, which is really interesting, is when people start having hypoglycemia, they start having really bad dietary behavior. Because having hypoglycemia, if you've never had hypoglycemia, it's a terrible feeling. And so people then start doing lots of dietary indiscretions, so to speak. Their blood sugar drops, and then they have a Snickers bar. Not just 15 grams of carbs like we recommend. They eat the whole thing. It's a permission to eat what they want. And so there may be a component of that here that's causing this hypoglycemia, dietary things to get her blood sugar up, and that could be causing this A1C. Mm-hmm. And it causes weight gain, right? Because you're eating more than you need to to bring your glucose back up typically, which can create a fair bit of weight gain, actually. One last question about this case. So her A1C right now is 7.8. Would anything about this case change if her A1C was at 7 or even less than 7? Would that change anything about how you approached this? I do think it would, yes. I would still approach it in the same way. We need to get to the root cause of the hypoglycemia. It might change my decision-making about whether or not I would still want to know the dietary information, right? I'd still want to know, is she chasing hypoglycemia with sugar? I would also want to know everything else that was going on in terms of the hypoglycemia. It may change my mind about replacing glyburide with a medication or just stopping glyburide. I think that would be the that would be the big thing that it would fix. I think if she were having hypoglycemia needs to be put to an end regardless of the A1C is good or at target or not at target, elderly people should not be having hypoglycemia because the risk to them is just too great. When I think about this case, my key takeaway would be something we talked about in the beginning, which is don't just assume that someone is okay based on their A1C right? We need to drill down and figure out, are they really having hypoglycemia? Because you can have hypoglycemia with an A1C of 12, right? It's not as likely, but you definitely can. And that can make management very challenging when you have that combination of both hyper and hypoglycemia. But the first step should always be eliminating the hypoglycemia. That's true for everyone because it's going to be very difficult to get to target if you're having lows for a variety of reasons, right? You're going to be constantly on the roller coaster. So even though someone's A1C might be at goal or even above goal, make sure that you know whether that's a factor and then work to address that first. Shannon, what would be sort of a key takeaway for you on this case? I think one of my takeaways for this would be to consider continuous glucose monitoring as a way to assess what's really going on from a minute to minute basis, as opposed to that three month average. CGM is increasingly available and covered by insurance. And as you mentioned, a professional CGM might be an option if patient CGM is not. I think CGM is a way for us to really get a good look at what's going on from minute to minute. Great. Thank you. I I completely agree with that. So let's go on to another person a person who's initiating insulin for the first time. We haven't talked much about insulin at all yet. And it definitely should be one of the tools 
and potentially a really early tool in the work that we do. So this gentleman, he's 57, has type 2 diabetes. He was first diagnosed at 40, so he has 17 years of history and was initially able to get to glycemic targets with lifestyle and metformin alone. But over the past 10 years, which we expect, diabetes is a progressive disease as we know, his body weight and his A1C have increased and his management plan has been modified accordingly. So, you know, meds have changed, but his glucose remains elevated. And at this particular visit, his A1C is 8.9% and he has a target of less than 7%. He talks about his diet. He says he eats a healthy diet most of the time. And he's currently receiving metformin extended release, 2,000 milligrams a day, smaglutide, two milligrams once a week, canaglifosin, 100 milligrams daily, in addition to his antihypertensive and lipid-lowering therapies. He says he's taking them all, you know, good adherence as he should be. But recently, he's described a five-pound unintended weight loss and increasing thirst which of course go along with his increasing A1C. What are your initial thoughts about this patient? And number one, his medications, his symptoms, and what would your next steps be? Yeah. So this is a situation where this patient is essentially maxed out on his current therapies. He could go up a bit on the canaglificin, but Again, that's going to be minimally effective. He is well above target, almost two percentage points above target. And we know we need to make something different happen today. The first thing I would say is that we always need to ask about treatment adherence. And that was mentioned here, but make sure that you're asking that because I can't tell you how many times patients come to see me in endocrine and they're prescribed three or four different diabetes therapies. When I ask them, well, how often are you taking? Or the way that I say it is many of my patients have a hard time remembering taking their medications. I know that can be very difficult. How often do you think you might miss your medicines? And just asking it in a very non-judgmental way, giving them permission to say they do miss it because that is something that we all do if we're prescribed medication. Make sure you ask that because if they're not taking their medications routinely, that's the first step is trying to make sure, try to figure out with them how we can help to have better medication persistence, I like to call it. This particular patient is reporting good adherence or persistence, which is great. So now we know we need something else. And so this patient, he's had diabetes 17 years. He's probably going to need basal insulin. And that would be my next best treatment option, especially because he is now symptomatic of hyperglycemia. And so we're at the point when patients start to exhibit symptoms of catabolism where you really need to start thinking about insulin therapy and not delaying that really. Once they start to get symptomatic, that becomes more concerning. One thing is, is please never frame insulin as a punishment. And that's even in the beginning. Patients tend to have some understanding of insulin from a family member or a friend, someone that was on insulin and then they died shortly thereafter because we know that their health history was probably quite poor, but they sort of correlate in-stage diabetes with insulin. And so we never want to hold that over someone, no matter the duration of their diabetes and say, I don't want to put you on insulin. You know, that should never be something that we're discussing, but really discussing the fact that you've had diabetes for 17 years, you've worked really hard trying to maintain your health, you're on excellent medication combination, but your body is still needing something more. And really what your body is needing right now is some insulin to bring your glucoses down to goal and to help you feel better and to stop some of these symptoms that are occurring. What are your thoughts? 
I think that's spot on. I, I do feel like we've had a little bit of a shift over the past 10 years with the GLP-1s that people are a little bit more receptive to injectables because of them, because many of them have been on them in the past. But I do think people are still have a lot of urban legends about insulin, as you mentioned. They have a lot of history, family history, as we know, type 2 diabetes is certainly very familial. They, they, know, they know someone who was started on insulin and then died. And sometimes we do see patients who have not been on an injectable and they have a lot of fear about starting insulin. They're worried about the ability to drive. They're worried about hypoglycemia. They have a lot of worries. I think those initial insulin conversations can be some of our most challenging, but we certainly shouldn't avoid them. I often talk about um, you know, insulin early with patients so that they are aware it is one of the medications that we use to treat diabetes. And sometimes I see a lot of patients post-hospital who are started on insulin very early, but if they're not started on insulin in the hospital or in the emergency room early, often start it really early because I think that does help people kind of get out of that mindset of it's the last ditch effort, which makes them feel like that they may have failed. Maybe some of the options that you would think about in a patient like this in terms of first insulin choices. I think that the best thing to start in someone like this is basal insulin. He he may end up needing basal bolus insulin, but we would hope that maybe we could get him to go with some additional titration of his SGLT2 with some basal insulin, maybe some, some more diet and lifestyle counseling. So we always want to start with what would be the simplest for the patient when possible. So starting them on a once daily injection would be very reasonable as a start and see what kind of benefit we can get. Certainly knowing what his glycemic patterns would be is very helpful um, because if he was having only postprandial glucose spikes, for example, and his morning glucoses were excellent, then that might be problematic. So that's where a continuous glucose monitoring can be very helpful in figuring out what's actually going on with him um, and his particular glucose patterns and making sure that your recommendation is safe for him. I would imagine with an A1C of 8.9, he probably would benefit most from basal insulin, which is where I would start with him. I think for many people in primary care in particular, the thought of starting insulin is sometimes overwhelming. How do you typically start people on basal insulin? You know, what's your strategy? Yeah. There's two different ways to do it. You can do a weight-based approach, which would be typically 0.2 to 0.3 units per kilogram per day. And I recommend weight-based dosing for almost every patient because you are going to get to goal much more quickly with that approach, especially for our patients that are overweight. You also could start at 10 units per day and have them have a titration plan of how to adjust it based on their fasting glucose. And that's also reasonable. It just might take a long time to get to a therapeutic dose if you're starting them on only 10 units. And for example, they are at 150 kilograms. For my endocrine students and for people that I teach about insulin, I always recommend recommend doing the 0.2 to 0.3 units per kilo per day as a once daily injection and then monitoring. And you can still give them a titration plan. For example, increasing that by two units every three days, for example, if the patient is savvy enough to manage that titration. Starting them on something is the most important key here. So if you really didn't feel comfortable and you wanted to start them on 10 units and have them titrate slowly, that's okay. Just know that it's going to take a bit longer to get to a therapeutic range, most likely. Do you do anything different? No, very similar. And I think it depends a lot on the patient as well. 
uh, and their comfort level with insulin, and also some of those other things about worries about hypoglycemia, right? I often think I want to be aggressive. I also don't want patients to, for any reason, end up with hypoglycemia and decide that they're never going to take it again. <laughs> I'm cautious about that, but I do often do weight-based dosing because I agree with you. It just seems to take forever. And it seems like a process The patients are already overwhelmed by starting on a new medication and having them have to adjust for three weeks to get to goal can be frustrating to them. So I do that. What do you think about all the different types of insulin that are available now? And someone, you know, like this gentleman, how would you pick between intermediate acting, long acting, ultra long acting? What are some of the decision-making points that you would use? Unfortunately, we're sort of bound by what their insurance will cover because even my best recommendations for patients often will say, nope, they're not getting that, right? Even the older ones like Glargine and of course, Degladec is a bit newer. Those are excellent basal insulins. Now we have some of the, the U200, U300 options that are very good. I really don't think there's a, a big difference that I've seen in therapeutic achievement between the different basal insulins. I would try to stay away, of course, from NPH unless it's absolutely required because they cannot afford anything else. But otherwise, Dedamir also is, is an older insulin. And so I don't use that much anymore if I have the option not to. But between the rest of them, I think that you're going to get a very good response and there's not a significant difference that I've seen. I don't know if you've had a different experience clinically, but I don't worry too much about the selection beyond what I just described. No, I would say I agree. I think early on in particular, I would pick one, right? Pick one, get comfortable with something and, and use one particular agent. I agree with you. I try to avoid some of the more intermediate acting insulins and would, as you mentioned, probably start with something like Largine. As as we go on in their diabetes management, there may be some benefits to some of the ultra long actings that we could consider in this particular patient. I don't think it would really make much of a difference. What would you, what, how would you change things though on this gentleman if he maybe hadn't been on some of the agents that he was on? Would that adjust what you did? So for example, say he wasn't already on a GLP-1, would you have started insulin on him anyhow? given his A1C of, of 8.9? Well, I wouldn't base it on his A1C, but I would be more concerned about that given his symptoms. What I would do it for someone like that with an A1C of 8.9 with symptoms is I would check a C-peptide. And that would tell us whether or not he's making his own insulin and how much. And then that would guide my hand on what I did. From an A1C perspective solely, I would certainly try GLP-1 or SGLT-2 because we know that's also recommended, right? The, the ADA says, if possible, and patients need more glucose lowering, start them on a GLP-1 first because they are incredibly effective for A1C lowering. But they're not going to have the same effect if the patient is not making their own insulin. That's a key component. And if you're not familiar with the C-peptide test, I would recommend just familiarizing yourself with that. And it does give you an excellent marker of endogenous insulin production and reserve. That, that can be very key in, in helping figure out what the best step would be. But again, his symptoms do concern me a bit. So when you have patients that are starting to exhibit symptoms of hyperglycemia, that becomes a, sort of a different scenario. And then the other thing I would add to that is I often tell people if I believe they need insulin is I will tell them, I think insulin is the safest thing for you right now. That's what your body is needing, but that does not mean you're going to be on it forever. And I take patients off insulin all the time. 
all the time. And I think that's something that people don't understand is that does not mean you're going to be on it the rest of your life. It just may be a temporary safest treatment for you. So that's a patient counseling perspective there. That's a great point because it's kind of what I was alluding at earlier. I see lots of patients who come in seeing them post-hospitalization or post-emergency room and they're started on insulin rightfully because their A1C was 10. There were reasons that it was that high and they, with lifestyle changes, weight loss and starting other medications, they can sometimes come off insulin and be managed with other medications. I can't begin to tell you the number of times people will say, you know, I have been so thirsty. I've been drinking a gallon of orange juice throughout the day. No wonder your A1C is 10. So with some of those lifestyle changes, starting them on the right medications, they are able to stop insulin for that however long period of time and then get back on. But I think the key is that early intensive treatment, we know long-term, if we don't, if we're not aggressive in the beginning, that legacy hyperglycemia does have an impact long-term outcomes. And I think that's really important. If he started on insulin and was able to lose a substantive amount of weight, how would you decide to, assuming that his, he was still producing insulin, right? This gentleman in particular has signs of catabolism and is likely not producing tons of insulin, but if he were still put him on insulin, he's able to get his A1C down. How do you make that decision about taking them off of insulin? Yeah, this is sort of where we sort of merge the art and science. <laughs> There's not a clear indication of that. And, and usually just because I have so many years of experience with insulin management, I can, some of it is how much insulin are they requiring, right? That's a big part of it. If they're on 40 units of basal insulin, that's going to impact them significantly if you take them off of it. Whereas if you have someone who's on 15 or 12 units of basal insulin, then it might make sense to try to taper them off or even or even stop it and see. Obviously, before you take them off insulin, you'd want to repeat the C-peptide, make sure we're okay. Um, this could be an opportunity where we consider switching him to terzepatide, for example, which we haven't talked about yet, but that does have greater efficacy for A1C lowering and weight. Uh, compared to semaglutide, at least just according to the, the data that we have. And so that could be an option, right? Whereas it, it maybe we could get by with that if he's already lost some weight, and that might be reasonable. So there's not a great way. I always tell patients that in my mind, even if we don't talk about it, I'm constantly evaluating, does this person still need insulin? Because we do know that these other options that we have are so effective and preferred, if we could consider it, it depends on several factors. And so the dose is one of them. And that's sort of the part where you have to sort of evaluate that by person and see if that seems reasonable. But again, if they're on 30, 40 units of insulin a day or more, that's probably not going to work. So we've started this gentleman on insulin. He's titrating up his dose of insulin based on the algorithm that we give him. How do you address hypoglycemia in a patient that you start on insulin? And what would you be thinking about in terms of glucose targets for him and how to titrate? Yeah, I mean, we know that basal insulin specifically targets fasting glucoses and it's going to bring down his overall glucoses on a daily basis. So we should have an understanding that it's not going to help significantly with postprandial glucose spikes. Hopefully that's where the semaglutide will kick in and be more effective. But with regards to adjusting his basal insulin, he really needs to keep an eye on his fasting readings because 
one of the other things that we will see is that people will continue to titrate their basal insulin based on what's happening during the day when they start eating, and then they will drive down the fasting glucose is too low and cause hypoglycemia. So that is a balance that you have to strike with basal insulin. And that's why sort of keeping an eye on fasting levels, keeping them between 80 and 130 is very reasonable. If patients start getting in the 70s, we need to cut back on that. So we should not be prescribing basal insulin if the postprandials are the main target, if that makes sense. Anybody who's on basal insulin now, I try to get them on a CGM if possible. And if they're willing to do that, because we really get the best optimization that way with regards to what's going on at home and and on a a minute by minute basis, as you said. What other things as you start people on insulin, do you talk about it? So a couple of things that I make sure that they have a general understanding of injecting insulin that have some form of glucose or glucagon that they know when to seek emergency medical care. I talk to them also about the risks of frequent hypoglycemia and the development of hypoglycemic unawareness. In addition to those, what other things would you think about for him? Is there anything else that I missed? No, I think that's perfect. I think patients worry about hypoglycemia. And honestly, one of the main concerns that I get is they worry about weight gain. I think that that's reasonable to worry about. If someone is being overtreated, then it can lead to hypoglycemia, which can lead to weight gain, as we said. And then also, for example, this patient had been losing weight. And so once we put him on insulin, he likely will regain that weight that he lost because now we're creating more of an equilibrium with what he's eating and how he's storing fat. And so I think just providing education as much as possible upfront, not only about safety, as you already highlighted, but also about these are the things that could happen, but these are the things that we're going to do to address that, to make sure that you are safe and that you have the best possible outcome without weight gain, without hypoglycemia. So give them as much guidance as you can in the beginning. That will really help them frame this experience so that they sort of know what to expect and that you're going to be looking at all those factors. I think those are critical. As this gentleman, we start on basal insulin. At what point do you decide that basal insulin isn't enough? And I know you talked about putting them in a CGM, and I know some of this is art and the science, but at what point do you decide that basal insulin isn't enough? And if you do that, do you change any of his other medications or do you just then add mealtime coverage? And how would you go about that? So I will typically guide patients that, you know, almost always, unless they have a contraindication to something or an intolerance to medication, or they have a change in their health, for example, with the development of CKD, usually diabetes medications are additive, right? Whereas we are continuing to add because your body is needing more as you get older and other factors. And so unless there was an issue, as I just described, typically we will, we will add. And because we know that these other medications he's on with SGLT2 and the GLP-1 can be very beneficial from a cardiac and renal standpoint, we would want to keep those. We would not want to get rid of them. And also the GLP-1 in particular can help with the amount of insulin that he might need in as far as reduction, right? He would not need as much insulin if he maintains the GLP-1, which is good. So yes, so I think having someone on a CGM is going to be your best indicator because you really will be able to see what patterns they have during the day, where they're spiking, because maybe he just needs insulin at dinner, right? Maybe he doesn't need insulin at every meal, but we wouldn't know that unless we have some more data. If he's someone that did not want to be on a CGM all the time, then he might agree to do a two-week 
uh, pro or diagnostic CGM. So at least we could get an idea of what's going on and make the best treatment decision for him. So now that we have CGM, that is really the best way to determine that. If they're not willing or you can't do that for some reason, then having them increase their monitoring to pre and post meal, two hours post meal would also be a reasonable approach. And honestly, it wasn't that long ago that that was our only choice, right? That's still fine if that's the option that you have. We do want to gather as much data about glucose patterns as possible before we decide whether he needs prandial and then at what meals we should start that. My one takeaway from this particular patient is to be alert to signs of catabolism, not just hemoglobin A1C in terms of when patients might need insulin. What's your key takeaway? Yeah, my key takeaway was is don't be shy about starting basal insulin. I would hope that in primary care or whatever specialty you're in, that you would be confident enough to start basal insulin, even if it's a low dose, 10 units, but ideally more of a 0.2 to 0.3 units per kilogram per day. If you feel like you need to escalate their care to endocrinology or to a diabetes specialist, that's fine, but don't delay, especially if someone is having symptoms and they need some attention sooner than later. So developing that expertise and that confidence with that particular prescribing would be essential, especially for patients like him. Catherine, these are great cases. I think really tell people a lot about the typical cases that we see, not only in, in endocrine practices, but in primary care. And I think the majority of these patients are likely to show up in a primary care office maybe first. And it's important, I think, for primary care providers as well as endocrine specialists to really have an understanding of what the treatment options are, how to work with patients to be really aggressive, you know, the therapeutic options, not just pharmacotherapy, but also lifestyle changes and working with that patient-centered approach to make sure that patients don't feel blamed for their condition, that it's a shared decision-making and that we work with them early on to get their glucose down so that they can reduce their risk of long-term complications. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why NPs are so good at diabetes care, because it should be holistic. It should be patient-centered. It should be individualized. And those are all the things and areas where we excel. So we hope this was helpful and it was a pleasure talking about these cases. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Isaac and Dr. Kreider, for this interesting and informative podcast. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Join our National Professional Association and add your voice to over 120,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide. I urge you to become an AANP member today. Membership gives you access to so many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice and the AANP CE Center, which offers a comprehensive library of CE activities for NPs of all specialties and experience levels. Exclusive discounts and many free activities are yours as an AANP member to help you complete state licensure requirements and earn the credits needed for recertification. I'm also excited to share that the 2023 AANP Fall Conference will be held in Austin, Texas, home to the AANP National Headquarters on September 7th through 10th. Earn up to 18 contact hours of CE credit in person or select the on-demand conference option, which will be available September 13th through October 18th. AANP members save at least 
$175 on conference registration fees. You may earn CE credit for this podcast by completing the post-test and evaluation by logging into the AANP CE Center at aanp.org slash CE Center and entering the participation code DIABETES2023. As a reminder, this podcast is part of the Clinical Advantage Bootcamp, which includes sessions about type 2 diabetes diagnosis, treatment, and holistic patient care coordination, medication management, advances in diabetes technology, and clinical resources such as a billing and coding tool and medication summary. Learners completing all six modules of the Clinical Advantage Bootcamp Type 2 Diabetes Management Certificate for Nurse Practitioners will earn a certificate of completion. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back frequently for new episodes. Thank you for listening. Thank you.